The committee will uh, come to order. Thank you all for being here today, and today we're going to discuss the recent emergency declaration regarding U.S. arms sales. To start, we should recognize and acknowledge that the law contemplates and indeed requires a partnership between the executive branch and the legislative branch regarding arms sales. This committee plays an important role to conduct rigorous oversight of the issue. At the same time, the law does grant the president authority to conduct sales without congressional approval in times of emergency. We'll be focusing on that issue. This hearing will focus on these roles and authorities. We must consider the context for this latest declaration, namely the active threats and attacks from Iran and its proxies and our partners' capabilities to defend against those threats. The Arms Export Control Act grants the President authority to declare an emergency concerning specific arms sales and avoid the standard process of congressional notification. Such presidential authority dates back more than 40 years to lessons learned from the October 1973 war in the Middle East. Presidents of both parties have used emergency authorities five on five previous occasions. In each case, they addressed specific threats to U.S. allies and did not alter the standing process of congressional review nor have a meaningful impact on Congress' authority over time. I expect this latest declaration will continue that pattern and deserves review in that expectation. As with, uh, as with one of the previous emergency declarations, this declaration came in response to threats and attacks from the Iranian regime. Since mid-May, Iran and its proxies have struck commercial ships, civilian airports, and desalination plants critical to the civilian population. Additionally, they shot down multiple U.S. unmanned aircraft. Over the weekend, Iranian-backed Houthi forces in Yemen unveiled even newer models of ballistic missiles and unmanned aerial vehicles capable of striking deeper into Saudi Arabia. Iran's threats and actions toward the U.S. and our allies have been clear. We must respond to such threats, protect our interests, and support our allies as they defend themselves. Uh, neither this president, nor Congress, nor the American people seek war with Iran. And I commend the president for his restraint in the face of numerous provocations. I was in the room as the president considered the, one of the most recent provocations and sought advice regarding that. Anyone, anyone who interprets the president's reasonable forbearance is making a grave mistake. That is a ripe for miscalculation, and it should not be mistaken. Attacking America, its interests, or our partners will lead to a strong defensive response. Emergency declarations are useful, not just for the tangible military capabilities they transfer to allies and partners, but are equally important for the messages they convey. These particular sales come in the context of and are colored by larger challenges with our Saudi and Emirati partners, including the war in Yemen, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and other human rights issues. To address these challenges, I introduced the Saudi Arabia Diplomatic Review Act and sought broad input from all quarters on a bipartisan basis to produce legislation that will move us much more in the right direction. I want to thank uh, all uh, parties, including my friends uh, on the other side of the aisle, who've been very helpful in uh, trying to craft legislation that will get us to where we want to be. Uh, I've been impressed 
uh, how uh, carefully people have weighed this issue and how impressed I've been uh, with the uh, attempt to reach legislation that balances uh, the various aspects of this challenge. This legislation calls for a comprehensive review of United States-Saudi relations. As we conduct this review, however, we must, not, we must discourage Iran aggression and must not leave Saudi Arabia vulnerable. Our partners desperately need the capabilities in these sales contemplated by other U.S. training and advising initiatives to improve their ability to minimize collateral damage and deter aggression. We are here today because of the continuing threats by Iran. As we move forward, I urge us all to seek measured solutions to these difficult challenges and avoid inadvertently strengthening our, our adversaries or damaging our partners and allies. I really believe this committee has done that and I hope we will continue to do that. I thank our witnesses for joining us today and look forward to hearing the perspectives on these issues. With that, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing today to examine the appropriate role of congressional oversight on arms sales. It is important that any president and any administration, and this one in particular, respect Congress as a co-equal branch of government and execute our laws in good faith. Now, despite your pledge during your confirmation hearing to do just that, Mr. Cooper, and your commitment to be transparent and forthcoming with this committee. Since you began your tenure, the department has shown only disdain for Congress and the laws that govern our arm export programs. Beyond that, you have balked at the idea that you should be held accountable for your actions. On May 24th, the Secretary of State sent this committee 22 notifications for arms sales and transfers to Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates totally more than $8 billion. In a boilerplate memo, the Secretary argued unconvincingly that these sales, some of which the committee had already cleared, were exempt from the legally required 30 days of congressional review and action, claiming a sudden, quote, emergency threat from Iran. Yet this administration has been unable to explain how, precisely, these sales respond to this supposed emergency. And at no time prior to May 24th did the administration once raise these sales as necessary to respond to the threat from Iran. Let me be clear, Iran has and will continue to pose a threat to U.S. interests and allies in the region. And I have and will continue to improve, uh, approve arms sales to allies that are in line with our long and short-term strategic interests and basic U.S. principles such as the basic respect for human life. But if you look at these sales, it appears that the administration had other motives. Indeed, when pressed, rather than explain exactly how these sales will address a supposedly imminent threat from Iran, you and other administration officials demurred and said the sales were for, quote, sustaining the global supply chain, for preventing, quote, loss of sale to peer competitors, for maintaining U.S., quote, credibility as an arms supplier and so on. So I look forward to hearing you explain today how would taking away American jobs and creating a Saudi jobs program of manufacturing F-18 panels for export for an, an aircraft the Saudis don't own or operate respond to an emergency? 
How would sales that would not be delivered for many, many months immediately respond to an emergency? And as I have been asking for more than a year, how does the sale of precision-guided munitions for use in Yemen, presumably when the same, uh, with the same atrocious results and human suffering we've seen over the last four years, respond to an emergency? Mr. Cooper, you testified in a House hearing that the, quote, protracted process of congressional review was problematic for the commercial sales. Indeed, unless I misunderstood, you implied that I personally, in exercising my rights as the ranking member of this committee, was the reason you had to push through all 22 sales. As you well know, the process was protracted because neither the Secretary nor the Department was willing or able to make a persuasive case that selling precision-guided bombs to Saudi and the United Arab Emirates the particular arms that I was holding, would improve protection of Yemeni civilians to Saudi airstrikes or end the UAE's human rights abuses in Yemen. In fact, not only did the department not make a persuasive case, you made no case since last October, after Jamal Khashoggi was literally butchered on orders from the highest levels of the Saudi government. So Mr. Chairman, my colleagues, the Secretary of State's message to us is clear. Congress can review arms sales. Just don't take too long or ask tough questions. Otherwise, I'll just ignore the law and cut you out of the process entirely. Three weeks ago, in a bipartisan fashion, the Senate made clear what it thought of the Secretary of State's false emergency sales by approving an unprecedented 22 separate resolutions of disapproval of these sales. Two weeks ago, this committee approved our bipartisan bill, the Saudi Arabia False Emergencies or SAFE Act, to prevent similar abuses of the emergency authority in the future. I hope the Secretary and the Administration appreciate the gravity of these actions and those to come. The informal arms sale review process under the Arms Export Control Act has operated successfully for decades. It worked because successive administrations recognized there is a value in consulting with the committees about any concerns that could arise from a sale, and they acted in good faith. Simply put, Mr. Cooper, you and the Secretary have undermined this process. I urge you to take another look at the definition of emergency and rethink your approach to engaging Congress and abiding by the congressional oversight you claimed during your hearing you would respect. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Uh, welcome, Secretary Cooper. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and Senators. In recent days, neutral shipping has been attacked. By providing a deterrent against hostile actions, this transfer lowers the risk of a broader conflict. The determination reflects the United States' grave concern with the growing escalation in the Gulf and its implication for the security of our friends in the region. These words could precisely describe the context of the recent emergency certification this hearing has been convened to discuss, but they are actually from a State Department announcement from 1984. Then, as now, Iran's revolutionary government threatened international shipping in the Gulf through its proxies, supported attacks on American interests in the region, resulting in deaths of 241 American service members in Beirut. Then, as now, our partners required the reassurance provided by an American demonstration of resolve. 
and then, as now, the administration took steps to deter war, not to bring it closer. In his May 24 certification, Secretary Pompeo advanced a set of arms transfers to support our partners in the current crisis. These capabilities include aircraft support, munitions, logistics services, unmanned intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance platforms, training, and advisory services. None of these constitute introductions of fundamentally new capabilities to the region. None alter the military balance of power. None are of a nature or category that Congress has not previously reviewed and approved for these particular partners. The Secretary's decision to exercise his statutory authorities under the Arms Export Control Act reflects the current threat from Iran, as well as the persistent threat. Prior to making the certification, the administration saw and briefed Congress about an increased threat stream from Iran relating to both U.S. and partner interests throughout the region. These troubling and escalatory indications and warnings from the Iranian regime prompted an increased U.S. force posture in the region. Events since the Secretary's certification served to further validate the urgent need for these sales. Iranian attacks on civilian crewed commercial cargo ships and tankers in the Sea of Oman, continued attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthis, these are including utilization of one particular case of a cruise missile against civilian commercial airports, and the shootdown of a U.S. broad area maritime surveillance unmanned aerial system in international airspace. These provocative actions mark a new evolution in the threat Iran poses to the region, to our partners, and to our own national security, including the security of the hundreds of thousands of Americans who live and work in the Gulf states. And the current situation, situation in Iran has implications not only in the Gulf, but in a geostrategic level. In today's world, our partnerships are vital, and we must ensure our partners have the capabilities, the systems, the communications, the intelligence, and the training to play their due role in maintaining the stability and the security in their regions. Our adversaries recognize the importance of our partnerships and have adopted purposeful strategies of trying to disrupt them at all levels, including in terms of our security cooperation. For instance, by seeking to replace us as suppliers of choice. As such, the Secretary's certification should not be seen not only as a deterrent to Iran and a reassurance to our partners, but it's also a rebuff to our competitors. Before closing, I would like to address some of the specific concerns that have been raised uh, by this committee. Many senators, many Americans, are concerned about the use of arms we provide overseas, including in the context of the Yemen Civil War. These concerns are appropriate, and we share them. From the beginning of the conflict, we have maintained a political solution is urgently needed and supported the UN-led effort working toward that objective. America stands out from many foreign suppliers of defense materiel by the premium we place on ensuring that our capabilities are not contributing to gross violations of human rights. 
We have worked with the Saudi-led coalition over the course of its operations to reduce the occurrence of civilian casualties. Our support in this regard has ranged from the provision of training on targeting to mentoring and advising the coalition on best practices, on lessons learned, and on integrating complex data into a system that is specifically designed to reduce civilian casualties. We've also provided higher-end legal training on the laws of armed conflict and have directly and regularly engaged with both military and political leadership on this topic. And finally, on the question of process, during both his confirmation and as cited here today, my own confirmation, the Secretary and I did provide you our commitments on the congressional review process for arms sales. That commitment stands. I value deeply Congress's role in the review of arms transfers. I take pride in the depth and the detail of the working relationships that we have with the committees in the course of this process. The Secretary's certification is not setting aside of that process, but it is the utilization of a long-standing statutory authority to respond to an urgent contingency. As such, I would like to take this opportunity to affirm the value we place in our engagement with you on arms transfers and broader security assistance issues. Mr. Chairman, in 1984, Ambassador Michael Armacost explained President Reagan's emergency certification to Congress in these words. Our decisions were a prudent yet clear response to an escalating emergency which threatens Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. They satisfied a clear military need. In addition, we sent a political signal of both reassurance and deterrence it was a measured response which promotes regional stability and security. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, committee members, a political signal of both reassurance and deterrence, a measured response which promotes regional stability and security. These are the purposes for which President Reagan certified an emergency in 1984, and they are the purposes for which Senate Secretary Pompeo invoked the same authority in May. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions today. Thank you very much, Mr. Cooper. Do you have any uh, current uh, plans to invoke emergency on any sales in the immediate or near future? No, Mr. Chairman. The, uh, the authority, as you noted, has been limited applied uh, very judiciously. Uh, this is the fifth application. Uh, the one I cited that was the most historic relevance was in 1984. The first application was in 1979. It has been judiciously applied across administrations from, from President Carter to President Trump. You made reference uh, in your testimony to the fact that uh, there was uh, the possibility always that uh, uh, someone like the Saudis, someone with, that has very substantial financial resources could uh, turn to uh, one of our two major competitors on the globe and uh, and actually uh, wind up in their orbit. Is that, a, is that a substantial threat, do you believe? In an open forum, I would, it's safe to, to address that there's always the risk of near-peer adversaries looking for opportunities, uh, not only in, in the Gulf region, but anywhere in the globe. Uh, I would say when we're talking about the national security strategy and how we meet near-peer adversaries, it's not limited to where they are geographically set. Uh, it is a global uh, concern. Um, back to the calculus on the emergency certification, it was a message uh, on several levels. The immediate one was a deterrence to Iran. 
There was the reassurance, as noted here, to these partners, but it was also uh, a warning or a rebuff uh, to near-peer adversaries who maybe were looking to uh, augment or seek opportunity. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, Mr. Cooper, would you agree that an emergency usually denotes something imminent, something urgent? Yes, Senator. I've, uh, so it wouldn't refer to something from years ago. So I read this May 24th memo from the Secretary multiple times, and yet I just can't seem to find where it lays out the emergency that these sales address. I see references to designations dating back to 1984, events from 2014, and general instability that has been plaguing the region for years, for years. But nowhere do I see where it says what the emergency is. So tell me, what is the State Department's operative definition of an emergency that you used for these sales? Thank you, Senator. So the statement you're referring to, the actual declaration, is an unclassified document, and you're correct to note that there is context in there of this particular adversary and their persistent threat stream, as well as what their proxies may or are capable of doing. What actually equates to an emergency, as is where we are today, is the, the current threat posture of, of Iran and what was calculated there from an interagency aspect. There were multiple tools, but including the, this, this declaration. Let, let me stop you, because I don't have unlimited time. Okay. Answer my question. What is the definition of emergency that you use for these sales? A confluence of conditions that were assessed required several tools by the administration, including uh, an increase of force posture, this emergency declaration, and application of sanctions that did equate an emergency status. None of that, none of that really has changed that from, from the present to the past. Did the legal advisor's office opine on what an emergency is? The legal advisor's office assured and cleared on the statutory authority that was made available for the secretary to make did, this decision. Did, he issue, did the legal advisor issue a legal opinion? Legal advisor's office was part of the, the process, and they, this I was a decision. I, I asked you, did they issue an opinion? And this far, I'm not going to talk about the pre-decisional process on the option did that they the issue an opinion? Had. What's the pre-decisional process? They either issued an opinion or they did not issue an opinion. Did they issue an opinion? That's not a question of a pre-decisional process. Do you have an opinion in your possession? Senator, the legal advisor's office participated in the application of the certification as noted by statute for okay. the Secretary's You're authority. My, you're not answering my question, and I'm not going to let you get away with what you got away with in the House. Either you have an opinion, in which case I want to see it, and if you don't have an opinion that's written, then you ultimately ha invoked an emergency, but without a legally defined opinion of what that emergency is. Why did the State Department never utter the word emergency to me or my staff in relation to any of these sales at any point prior to the Secretary's emergency certification? Senators, you noted and others have noted on May 21st, there was a classified briefing that was provided to Congress. In that briefing, there was details about the current threat posture with Iran. This certification uh, was an option as a tool, including invocation of sanctions or application the, of the, sanctions. The words well. emergency, Mr. Cooper, were never used by anyone 
from the Secretary of State all the way down. Did you discuss declaring an emergency for these sales with the Secretary before the Secretary briefed the Senate and the House on May 21st and 22nd? Senator, all the cases in the emergency, including cases that were not included in the certification, were part of our interagency process, not only with the department, but the normal review process. We provided options for the secretary to make his decision on application of the certification. Did you discuss an emergency as part of that? Again, in an open forum, I would say looking at intelligence community assessments I'm not at the asking time. You, I'm not asking, wait a minute. It's part of the. You want to divert to classified so you don't have to answer. I didn't ask you a classified question. I simply asked you, did you declare the possibility of an emergency declaration prior to May 21st and 22nd? That's not classified. No, Senator, the calculus is inclusive of that data. So the data is an absent of intelligence data. So that is part of the consideration of- I'm not asking like you posture. about intelligence data. I'm not asking you about how you came to the decision of an emergency in this case. I'm simply asking you, Mr. Cooper, this is far for the transparency that you pledged to when you were before this committee. Far from the transparency that led me to support your nomination. Simple question. Did you offer up an emergency as an option prior to May 21st and 22nd? There were a number of considerations and tools made available for the interagency inclusive of sanctions, this emergency, and force posture. Any of those could have been applied or none of those could have been so applied. You did discuss an emergency prior to May 21st and 22nd. Threat posture is continuously assessed. It is assessed before May 21st, Senator. We don't stop assessing. Iran has been a continuing threat posture. Let's be honest. Upticks uh, your, and your, changes your, in posture. Your unwillingness, your unwillingness leads to a total lack of transparency and is insulting to the Senate when the Secretary was before us the day before he ultimately made this decision and never mentioned in front of 100 United States Senators that there was going to be an emergency declaration. I find that overwhelmingly amazing to try to believe that all of a sudden an emergency came up just right after we were briefed. Preposterous. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Secretary Cooper. Se Secretary Cooper, you started to mention the word uptick. Uh, was the assessment by yourself, others, uh, the belief that uh, there was an uptick in hostilities? In a general sense, in this open fora, there was a shift in posture that required a number of tools for the administration, inclusive of this declaration, to be applied. And there was a concern that there was a strike or activity or hostility of some kind that was imminent? That is correct, in a very general sense. Would you consider an imminent hostility or strike an emergency? Correct. Thank you. I want to change uh, the subject a little bit here. I'd like to switch gears and talk a little bit about the Indo-Pacific. Uh, on December 31st, 2018, the President signed into law the Gardner-Markey Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA. Uh, Section 209B of ARIA states, the President should conduct regular transfers of defense articles to Taiwan uh, that are tailored to meet the existing and likely future threats from the People's Republic of China, including supporting efforts, the efforts of Taiwan to develop and integrate asymmetric capabilities as appropriate, including mobile, uh, mobile survivable, and cost-effective capabilities into its military forces. June 28th, uh, the Senate approved the fiscal year 2020 National Defense Authorization Act 
including uh, my amendment calling for the administration to fully comply with ARIA provisions. And two days ago, on July 8th, the State Department approved a possible $2.2 billion sale to Taiwan, including 108 Abrams tanks and 250 Stinger missiles. Uh, I commend the administration for making this decision and for implementing uh, ARIA as Congress uh, intended. Uh, what is your of, assessment of Taiwan's current defense capabilities and needs? Thank you, Senator. I'll say in an open forum that in addition to ARIA, uh, when we were doing the tiered review process, so going back to the process of lines of communication with Congress and particularly uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, those cases that were formally announced on Monday that you referenced uh, went through the process uh, as normal. Um, in addition to ARIA, also uh, comports with aligns with the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, so that was that factored in uh, and still aligns with our, our one China policy. Uh, as far as their defense posture, uh, safe to assess and, and is well-known open source uh, that they certainly uh, have a sovereignty of, of right to defend their sovereignty and is one that uh, we certainly would not see impeded upon. Uh, and that does comport where we are with the Taiwan Relations Act. What's your assessment of likely and future threats that Taiwan faces from the People's Republic of China? Threats to Taiwan's sovereignty are, are not abated or, or going away. Uh, and they're, they are something that we need to factor with that partner. Uh, we are a reliable partner. They also are a reliable partner when we are looking at uh, making sure that the Indo-Pacific region is open and free, uh, and they are a part of that constellation of partners uh, to ensure that we have an open and free Indo-Pacific. Yeah, and how has the administration supported the efforts of Taiwan, as I mentioned, to develop and integrate asymmetric capabilities, uh, the, 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 mobile, the mobile survivable cost-effective capabilities uh, into its military force? Again, with this particular partner, with the, the uh, parameters that we have to work with them, uh, we seek to make whatever capability is robust. Again, it's about making sure that they're not only able to defend their sovereignty, uh, but play a regional security role for an open and free Indo-Pacific. One of the challenges I think that we face uh, is the, the pipeline that needs to be filled with continued action as it relates to fulfill our commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act and ARIA as it relates to Taiwan. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, the, the, the pipeline, so to speak, of what else we will be doing to help Taiwan and fulfill our obligations? Looking forward and uh, way ahead, there are additional uh, assets uh, that will be going through the review process uh, here uh, at the Senate uh, before we go to formal notification, and that's already happening. Um, to your point about pipeline, uh, certainly uh, looking forward as to what capabilities may be required in the future versus fighting uh, previous uh, last year's or different generations wars, looking at uh, back to the asymmetric trans-regional uh, aspect of threats that Taiwan may be needing to address, not just for their own homeland sovereignty. I think part of the challenge with the arms sales is allowing too much time between uh, transactions with Taiwan, allowing China greater uh, opportunity to oppose, to raise uh, political opposition. Uh, and if the pipeline is indeed filled and uh, regularized, so to speak, I think that would present a, a better opportunity for the United States to engage with Taiwan and other allies uh, and uh, to make sure that we, we fulfill uh, the Taiwan Relations Act and ARIA, which calls for uh, routinized or regularized uh, sales provisions. Thank you. And Senator, as you would note, um, uh, their legislative body uh, also has their particular processes that uh, require uh, a, a pipeline a aspect, which is uh, well noted uh, at the department and the, the, throughout the interagency. I commend you for the sale. Thank you. Yeah. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I have sat on this committee with 
Democrats in the White House, Republicans in the White House, Democrats controlling this committee, Republicans controlling this committee. And the balance in the Arms Export Control Act has never been breached except for this declaration. And I think it's extremely serious, so I just want to put this on the record. We passed the laws, and in the Arms Export Control Act that we passed, we made it clear about the mandatory nature of congressional involvement in arms sales. That's our prerogative as the Article First branch of government on establishing policy. It is normal for us to give a national security waiver to a president to give flexibility for unforeseen circumstances. We do that routinely in our legislation. But the exercise by this administration of that authority shows a disrespect for Congress and could very well affect the comedy that exists between the two branches of government on arms sales, which means we're going to have to be more prescriptive in our laws, taking away discretion from the executive branch of government, which may not be in our national security interest, but our responsibility to make sure our policies are carried out, which were not carried out in this instance. Mr. Cooper, you mentioned the May, the 1984 declaration. In 1984, it was two sales, not 22 sales. In 1984, the, the arms were delivered immediately. That's not the case in this. And in 1984, you had strong support for Congress on what you were doing, what the President was doing. In this case, you don't. So there is not an analogy between the use of the emergency declaration in 1984 and today. How many of the 22 arms sales have been delivered, completed? Of the sales, the direct commercial sales, the licensing has been completed. How uh, many deliveries have been made of the 22 arms sales? That's a s simple question. As, as far as specificity on the different licenses and different deliveries, we can provide that in a, in a record but Isn't statement. it safe to say that many of those arms sales have not been yet delivered? Licensings have been complete. Have they been delivered? The, the, as I understand the emergency declarations, they need the military equipment for, for our security. How many of those actual arms have been delivered to date? Not how many licenses have been issued, how many have been delivered? Delivery is pending. The issuance and emergency was providing that reassurance for our partners. And I understand that. So they haven't been delivered. The declaration was made on May 24th. The Arms uh, Control Act requires a 15 to 30 day congressional review. It's a requirement. You couldn't go through a 15 to 30 day review but you've been considering this for a long period of time and the arms have not been delivered. Do you understand why we consider this to be an abuse? Senator, they had been under review in many cases uh, close to a year. So the, the cases that we talk about are not new. They had been under review. Now as far as- I understand as, that, but the okay. law requires the 15 to 30 day which you blew through. We had covered that, that period and had gone beyond that, Senator. I, I just, urge you to recognize the risk factors that you're leaving for our country. If Congress feels disrespected by what this president has done, this administration has done, as to our constitutional role, it leaves us little choice but to limit the discretion to the executive branch of government, which we can legally do because we are the legislative branch of government. And that's what's coming down. I want to talk one other issue, if I might, which deals with the U.S. conventional arms transfer policy. 
that the U.S. shall not authorize a transfer when the U.S. have actual knowledge that transferred weapons will be used to commit crimes against humanity, grave breaches of Geneva Conventions, or attacks intentionally directed against civilian objects or civilians who are legally protected from attack. You have said that we have been working with the Saudis to reduce the number of civilian casualties and the better targeting, et cetera. Yet, I think it's indisputed that after those consultations, there were still attacks in which the international community said has violated the international uh, Geneva Convention and civilians being targeted for death. That's what has been said several times. I could also go to the Philippines where we have U.S. weapons that have been provided and there has been extrajudicial killings that we know about that violate international norms. How are you protecting our policy that our arms cannot be made available where we have knowledge that these governments have participated in actions that have violated these international norms? Thank you, Senator. In addition to statute, the, the current policy, the CAT policy, this administration policy goes above the statute on those requirements. It doesn't preclude us from pushing further and harder. No Department of Defense, no Ministry of Defense is ever going to say they've reached a satisfactory point know, on mitigating civilian I know, the law requires that if you have knowledge that they violated, you don't transfer weapons, and you have transferred weapons after we have acknowledged that there's been violations. We do not suspend our security relationship with a partner that carries so much weight for our interests and our equities in the region, but we are not precluded from following up on issues and abuses. We are not precluded from assuring and providing training and improvements on mitigation of civilian casualties. There's, there's no abating of that. There is room for work. So no just so I understand your that. answer. You're saying that the U.S. Convention arms transfer policy can be sacrificed if we have an important relationship with, with a country? No, it should not be sacrificed. That's what you're doing, because you're transferring weapons after you have knowledge that they violated international norms. It doesn't preclude us from course correction or reconciliation, Senator. Our policy is not just limited to arms transfers. It is a, an expression, a manifestation of what else we export. Open society, human rights, that is a part of our policy. We do export the best of America with our arms transfer policy. With that also comes the responsibility of the application of those weapons. Adversaries do not provide a long sustainment tail. They also don't provide any tail of any support when it comes to application and precision of, of those, those services or weapons. It is what's required of us, not only by statute, it is incumbent upon us from a policy and moral aspect. I, I just conclude by saying, You've tried, you haven't succeeded, and you're still providing weapons, and that is against our conventional arms transfer policy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Romney. <clears throat> Appreciate your being here today. Um, we, uh, we have uh, a policy as a nation to sell weapons to various na nations throughout the world. Um, there are many reasons for doing that. Surely one is uh, to uh, support uh, the weapon-making industry in our country, which provides revenue and, and jobs for people here. I presume that's a very small part. 
of the decision-making about whether we're going to sell weapons someplace, um, and it should be given very limited weight in our thinking about whether we're going to sell weapons. Uh, overwhelmingly, I would anticipate that the decision to sell weapons to other nations should be related to a strategic purpose that we have as a nation. And so, of course, we're, we have a strategic purpose in providing uh, the most modern weaponry uh, available to, uh, to our NATO allies and to, uh, to other nations that we have very close relationships with. Uh, but then there are nations that are perhaps outside of that very close circle um, that we also sell weapons to. And, and I, I'd like to ask you what the uh, decision rules are that you follow in thinking about those other nations and how you decide what types of weapons to sell to them and whether or not to sell weapons to them and, and whether they fall into different categories, whether you have certain groups of countries that you sell certain uh, types of weapons to, or instead whether, um, uh, whether you look on a one-off basis, nation by nation, and say, well, we're going to look here uh, at Taiwan differently than we do Saudi Arabia, than we do another nation. Uh, do they fall into different categories? And what are the decision rules that you, that you uh, follow in deciding not just to the NATO and Israel and, and these very, very close allies, but but to these other nations, what are the decision rules that you follow? What is the, uh, the U.S. Um, interest that you uh, seek to, uh, to foster by virtue of the, uh, the, the decisions that you make? Thank you, Senator. And, and you're correct to assess that uh, no partner is particularly on par with another partner or another ally. And so to your point about circles, yes, one can say there's essentially concentric rings of what is available but it's also what's uh, capable of that partner. Uh, the assessment is not limited to my part of the State Department. It is a whole of government assessment. Uh, this is in, all the way down at the field level uh, where we do country team assessments uh, through our defense cooperation offices as well as our, our political aspects. It does include a whole host of, of, of issues or what you'd say factors of assessment of where is this country as far as a relationship with us bilaterally, so country by country. What particular role do they play in a partnership or in a broader security alliance like NATO? Are there interoperability factors that we need to factor in like NATO? Um, are there other political issues that we need to address? Are there human rights issues that we need to address? Are there other negotiations or factors that we are seeking to uh, address or reconcile at the same time uh, a sale is being considered? That also factors in the timing and sequencing of a sale. Uh, another big one that I would say is kind of a chapeau uh, over all sales right now is what are we looking at uh, from the national security strategy, the chapeau of near-peer adversaries. Near-peer adversaries aren't limited just to their home geographic regions. Uh, they, are, they are doing work and disruption uh, throughout the globe. So looking at a partner's capability uh, to address that on our behalf is certainly a factor. So there is a, a host of interagency, whole of government factors that go into before we even inf uh, informally notify the Congress about a potential sell, uh, starting at the country team level, working with our embassies, uh, and then working here at the, the ministerial interagency uh, as well. But it is very much country by country, case by case, certainly factoring in regional considerations, certainly factoring in primarily our interests. Uh, is it, are there U.S. persons? Are there U.S. interests that, that need to be protected? Uh, and there's also an absorption issue. Can the partner actually uh, take this system or this program or platform and actually be able to, uh, to apply it? So there's some capacity uh, factors, not just on their ability to defend their sovereignty and defend our interest, is can they do it 
with what's being provided. Um, safe to say, uh, there are uh, partners that we work with uh, that might have um, eyes bigger than their capacities, and that's something that we work to actually frame better and, and provide them something, a generation or a capability that's more apropos uh, to where they may be or where you would like to see them. But to your question, it varies on what is the, the threat in the region, what is our bilateral relationship, what is their capacity to absorb, uh, and also timing and sequencing of other strategic interests that we may be addressing uh, in the region. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Assistant Secretary Cooper, it's been said already, but I think it's worth repeating because I share in the disappointment that has been expressed by members of this committee over the deliberate decision to ignore the intent of the Arms Export Control Act. It's very clear that was a deliberate decision to ignore that act. Congress and the executive branch have a protocol on arms sales that works, that is fully capable of achieving our strategic goals, including addressing threats from Iran and Saudi Arabia's self-defense. And when the secretary disrupts that protocol by declaring an emergency, he erodes the trust between our branches of government, and that has consequences. That has consequences for this administration, and it has consequences for future administrations. And I hope that you and the Secretary and other members of the State Department involved in this decision will think very carefully about what the negative consequences of those decisions will be. So I would like to follow up on questions that have been asked and ask if you can describe the specific capabilities that Saudi Arabia and the UAE were lacking that these 22 arms sales address in a way that could not wait the 15 to 30 days for congressional approval. I have the list right here. So I hope you will go through each one of those 22 arms sales and tell me which one of these was so immediate that it couldn't wait for congressional approval. Thank you, Senator. On, and I have the same list, on the, on the overall, to your question about capabilities and readiness, specific to any partner's capability readiness or strengths or gaps, I would happily address that in a classified setting if we're talking about that specificity. To the list, there were a number of cases that were under consideration or under review already. These were the ones that were assessed as what would be supportive of defense of sovereignty in filling particular gaps. One, if you want to ask about some immediacy, was on some of the, the training and sustainment ones, which were, which were reading, reaching some suspense or timelines that were about to not happen, or we would have gaps there as far as a support on that. But as I understand your response to Senator Cardin, those haven't yet been delivered. Is that correct? The training and sustainment ones, uh, we were making sure there wasn't a break. Uh, on licensing, for DCS, those licenses have been completed for, and ready for delivery. On the FMS, those LOAs are still being uh, completed uh, now that we know that these are the ones that have been identified for, for movement. And can you tell me whether there are any present or former State Department employees who have ties to any of the companies that are impacted by these sales that may have been involved in any of the discussions to invoke this emergency provision? I'm not going to talk personnel here, but I will say that, it, that the interagency process applied here was U.S. government process only 
nobody from industry was involved in this process. No, I didn't ask that. I asked if there were any former State Department employees, present or former State Department employees, with ties to companies affected by these sales who were involved in the discussions around the emergency declaration. Not that I'm aware of, Senator. This was a government decision, interagency decision, State Department processes applied here. And can you tell me the, as has been suggested, the, we are not supposed to transfer weapons or the countries that we provide weapons to are not supposed to transfer those weapons for use on civilian targets or any unauthorized transfer. Um, yet there have been reports that the UAE has supplied General Haftar in Libya with American-made missiles. Can you confirm whether that is the case and is there an investigation and how do we expect to sanction the UAE if the investigation shows that in fact they have supplied those missiles? Yes, ma'am. So Senator, the uh, committee staff uh, had a classified brief this Monday uh, from the State Department specific to, specific to the issue you raised about javelins being present in Libya. What I can say in an open forum today is the javelins in question that are part of the investigation that we're conducting and did brief committee staff on actually belong to France, not the UAE. And if they had shared those missiles, what kind of sanction would you expect us to impose on the UAE? As with any partner, uh, when there's an investigation of end-use violation, uh, there are consequences that could be uh, cessation or suspension of particular programs. We've seen that and we've applied that with other partners. Uh, sometimes it's specific to the system. Sometimes it's actually broader. It could actually touch other security assistance, but there, there are consequences where the department uh, and Congress have worked concurrently to identify suspenses. And as I'm sure you're aware today, we are hearing that Turkey, a NATO ally of ours, is expected to receive delivery of the S-400 system um, from Russia, NATO's adversary. How will the administration respond to that? We have requested briefings from state and defense on this topic. When can we expect that kind of a briefing to happen? Well, Senator Shaheen, I, I can't give you a date certain on briefing, but what I can talk about, and you and I had a discussion about uh, at my confirmation hearing, is we, the administration, actually I think all parts of government have been very clear to uh, our Turkish partners, uh, regardless if it's been at an operational level uh, or up at a, at a senior principal level, of there being consequences of delivery of the S-400. Um, the biggest issue that has been uh, raised and re-amplified and reasserted with, with Turkey, with a NATO partner, is that the S-400 is a challenge to interoperability as a NATO partner uh, and is an affront. Uh, we have made it very clear that there, there are consequences and they are at risk of, of sanctions. Um, speaking of tools provided by Congress, I mean, CATS is one of those tools uh, that the administration has. Um, I don't think there's been any uh, lack of clarity uh, to the Turkish government on our concern about them uh, and their responsibilities as a NATO partner that they're putting at risk uh, with the receipt of the S-400. Thank, Thank you. I'm out of time, but I would just point out that Congress, the Senate has said that if they receive delivery of the S-400, they should not receive the F-35s or be part of that program. Is that your understanding as well? That we are on the same page, Senator. That's very clear. 
they may not be listening, but we've all said it. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Cooper, thank you for your testimony. Um, I want to break this issue down into two parts, substance and process. On the substance, uh, I agree with the administration uh, that these arms sales were appropriate, uh, not because the Saudis are steady and reliable allies. Uh, the Saudis are deeply problematic allies whose conduct uh, often is lacking, and they have historically shown far too much of a willingness to get in bed with enemies of America, uh, even though they are a problematic ally. The Saudis are also, I believe, a critical counterweight to Iran. And on any rational and reasonable comparison, measuring the threat to the United States of America between the Saudis and Iran, it is not remotely close. Iran is led by theocratic mullahs and an ayatollah who chants death to America and is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. That is the reason that I ultimately voted with the administration in support of these arms sales, uh, is because helping the Saudis defend themselves against Iran is in the United States' national security interest. Can you articulate to this, to this committee the threat that Iran poses both to the Saudis but more fundamentally to the United States? Thank you, Senator. In an open fora, uh, it's been referenced that the persistent threat's not gone away. That's fair. What has changed has been recent upticks in direct threats to U.S. persons and U.S. interests in the Gulf region. That is what's different. To our partners, there are direct threats not only by Tehran, but emanating through proxies from Tehran. Uh, we discussed a little bit of what's been an open source and open fora about attacks that have been incurred upon uh, our Saudi partners, our Emirati partners, on their civilian populace and on their infrastructure. Uh, we have talked about the, the Houthis and what they're doing uh, to excavate and, and expand uh, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, uh, as well as uh, being supported by Tehran. So the threat isn't going to go away. but deterrence through these sales, deterrence through sanctions, deterrence through presence and posture is a way to address it. Um, and I would say in a closed fora, we could talk articulately about specificity of timing, very specific threats, specificity. How, how advanced is Iran's uh, ballistic missile capability? In an open forum, Iran has capabilities that go beyond their localized scope and are a threat to neighbors and are a direct threat to partners other than the ones that we we're talking about here today. They, are, they have capabilities that emanate beyond Tehran uh, to a, a broader region. Well, that's, that's quite a bit of understatement, given that they're the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world, and they're directly responsible for the murders of over 600 U.S. servicemen and women. And they also are a facilitator of other forms of terrorism beyond direct reports or what would be called command and control of, of Tehran government. There are elements that are not under direct C2 or direct command and control 
from the Quds Force, as you referenced. But again, we're, we're in an open fora at this time. Well, as I said, I agree with the substance, but shifting to the process, I have to say I agree with the concerns that have been expressed in this hearing on both sides of the aisle. Uh, the process that the State Department followed for these weapons sales, not to put too fine a point on it, was crap. Under the law, under the Arms Export Control Act, the administration needs congressional approval and has a 30-day notification period. And for whatever reason, the administration, in what seems to me a not fully baked decision-making process, decided to circumvent the law, decided to circumvent the constitutional responsibility of Congress and act unilaterally. Now, if you have an army surging on the border and an imminent emergency, that's one thing. There is, in fact, an exception for that. It's now been 47 days since you declared an emergency. Did I hear you right in your answer to questions earlier that, that you can't point to a single one of these 22 sales that have actually been delivered? Licenses have been completed on the DACS side for delivery. It, it's a simple question. Have they been delivered? On the servicing and training compo components, yes. But if we're talking hardware, they're ready for delivery. So that was 47 days ago, the emergency occurred. Did, did I also hear you right where you said the review process on this was close to a year? This goes back to the cases you were referencing, the process here. Uh, there, are, there were cases that had been before Congress in the tiered review process for close to a year. Well, if the department had a year to gaze at its navel and consider this, the department had 30 days to take it to Congress and follow the law, and it was foolishness not to. And don't make the mistake of thinking that it is simply Democrats who are concerned about this. I voted with the administration on the substance because of the threat of Iran, but I'll tell you from my end, if the administration does it again and there is not a live and exigent emergency, you will not have my vote, and I predict you will not have the vote of a number of other Republicans as well. The simpler process is follow the damn law and respect it. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Romney and Ranking Member Menendez. Um, I want to compliment you, Assistant Secretary Cooper, on managing to achieve a rare moment of bipartisanship on this committee. Um, I will tell you it is not often um, that my colleague from Texas and I agree completely on a matter. Um, his statement that the Saudis are a deeply problematic partner who have shown too often a willingness uh, to embrace enemies of our country, uh, I agree with. And his condemnation and that of many others on both sides of the aisle here about the timing and the process, both of the consultation and the ultimate decision, uh, on these recent arms sales um, is one of those moments that I will hope gets the attention of the administration. I appreciate your service and your testimony here today. Um, it is important that we continue to have an open and constructive dialogue between the executive and legislative branches. And on something as significant as the Arms Export Control Act and the complicated consequences of our sales to our security and military partners and allies around the world, 
uh, I think it is essential that we ask questions and get answers. Um, most of the concerns I had intended to raise here today have already been addressed by my colleagues, so let me ask one or two additional questions. We have sold billions of dollars in arms to our Gulf partners and allies over the years. In your views, have these sales produced capable militaries? As I was sharing earlier about partner to partner to capacity assessments, no partner is the same. There's always an ongoing assessment about their ability to absorb either a particular platform or system. And there's always an ongoing assessment on their ability to be able to maintain their own defense of their own sovereignty. And there's always an ongoing assessment on their capability or ability to be a regional security partner and carry water for us. Hmm. They are always at varying degrees. Sales and potential sales are, are assessed as to how we contribute to actually improve and augment capabilities. Sometimes will of a partner does not always marry up to a capability of a partner, mm -hmm. uh, and that's not unique. Uh, but it does actually amplify the necessity for constant assessment. When I say assessment, this isn't limited to the State Department. We share this with our interagency partners at the Department of Defense. We share this with the intelligence community. It is, it's an ongoing process. It also includes sometimes taking a, a honest assessment of if a partner, if we need to adjust uh, what's provided to a partner. Well, Assistant Secretary Cooper, it is exactly that issue, an honest assessment and an adjustment that lies at the core of this conversation and what I hope will be a constructive process led by the chairman um, to reconsider and reevaluate the U.S.-Saudi um, partnership or relationship. Um, because frankly, I have grave concerns uh, over their conduct in the war in Yemen, uh, over human rights actions uh, within the Saudi kingdom and against uh, others uh, in the region and the world. Um, and in my view, um, those of us who have um, stood with the Saudis um, over a number of years because of concerns, legitimate concerns about the threat that Iran poses to the region, to the world, um, for many of us, that patience is run out. Um, we have made persistent, sustained, engaged efforts to improve their conduct against civilians in the war in Yemen, um, only to be shown over and over again that they have come up short. And I think it is long overdue um, for us to reconsider. What are the limits? What are the limits to our relationship uh, with the Saudi Kingdom? Um, are there times when um, we are putting not just our security at risk, but our values at risk by the ways in which um, a long and close uh, partner um, is conducting themselves. So um, I see my time is almost up. Let me just say this in closing. Um, you have heard comments today forcefully conveyed from both sides of the aisle by senators. Um, both the substance and the process for these emergency arms sales has gotten us to a place uh, where the administration must respect the mandate of the law and the process to be followed in order for the executive branch to preserve the emergency exemption that exists in the law. If not, I suspect this body will act and restrict or remove that ability for future emergency waivers altogether. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Coons. I think those remarks are, uh, are well taken. There's, uh, there is a lot of frustration right now. We have a confluence of events that's gotten us to this point, and reevaluation is really, really important. And I really hope that uh, this morning uh, I dropped, as you know, the bill Senator Shaheen and I are, are co-sponsoring that is a bipartisan bill 
that strikes at, uh, at that very issue and calls for a reevaluation and some very specific steps in that regard. I'm really hoping that all of us can join together to pass a piece of legislation. Obviously, there's, it, it doesn't go as far as many people would like to go, particularly when it comes to some of the specifics of recent events. Uh, but again, I, I think we shouldn't focus on that as much as actually developing a bipartisan method for reevaluating the, the relationship because uh, it, it has uh, headed south on us uh, since about 2015. And uh, it, uh, it, unfortunately, it's right at a time when our challenges from Iran are getting substantially more significant uh, as we try to uh, uh, respectfully and uh, reasonably impose the sanctions for, for what they're doing. And all of this causes a, a Rubik's Cube kind of a, a problem. But look, we're up to this. We've done other things that are as difficult. And uh, I hope we'll all join together in the next couple of weeks as we as we try to work on this piece of legislation. But thank you for your remarks. I think your, your expression of frustration on parts of uh, virtually everybody up here is, uh, is well taken. Thank you, Senator Coons. With that, Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair and Assistant Secretary Cooper. Thank you for your testimony. My colleagues have done a good job of laying out the concern about compliance with the statute, and I'm gonna just go a different direction. And the direction is one word, why, why? Um, why bypass Congress on arms sales to the Saudi? Why bypass Congress and not provide Congress the traditional notification when Part 810 authorizations are entered into to allow transfers of nuclear know-how to the Saudis? Why veto the congressional repudiation of the Saudi-led war in Yemen? Why refuse to comply with the direct congressional request under the Magnitsky Act to render a determination about whether the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi was a human rights violation or not. There are a series of instances with this administration where in response to congressional action, and in some cases clear congressional mandates, in matters dealing with Saudi Arabia, that the administration is taking very unusual action. Mr. Chair, I'd like to introduce for the record a report from the House Oversight Committee dated February 2019, whistleblowers raised grave concerns with Trump administration's efforts to transfer sensitive nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. That'll be entered in the record. Thank you, Senator. Let me just list a series of dates, and, and Assistant Secretary Cooper, this is not really in your bailiwick. It's a broader set of questions for the administration that I know I and many other members of the Senate are concerned about. As a candidate for president in August of 2015, then candidate Donald Trump said, quote, Saudi Arabia, I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me. They spend 40, 50 million bucks. Am I supposed to dislike them? Shortly after he was inaugurated in May of 2017, President Trump took his first visit abroad to Saudi Arabia to Riyadh and he announced a $110 billion arms deal. In December of 2017, the Trump administration um, approved a Part 810 authorization authorizing transfer of nuclear know-how to the Saudis. In the past, this information had been publicly noticed to both Congress, the press, and the public. This notification, this authorization of transfer to the Saudis was not uh, uh, notified to Congress in December of 2017. Within a month after the first transfer of this nuclear know-how to Saudi Arabia, 
an investment in real estate firm, Brookfield Business Partners, announced a plan to do an unusual purchase for them. They bought Westinghouse Electric, one of the primary nuclear service industries in the United States, for $4.6 billion. Shortly after Brookfield bought Westinghouse, Secretary Perry began testifying on the Hill in public settings saying it was our goal as a nation to get the Saudis to use Westinghouse to construct reactors in Saudi Arabia, public testimony about Westinghouse. In August of 2018, Brookfield, which owns Westinghouse, made another unusual investment. Jared Kushner had a troubled real estate deal on Fifth Avenue in New York. And Brookfield came in and entered into a 99-year lease worth more than a billion dollars that, that has been reported as essentially bailing out a troubled deal. And they paid all of the lease money for 99 years up front. They paid it up front. After the administration has been promoting their Westinghouse now-owned subsidiary to the Saudis and transferring nuclear technology to the Saudis, Brookfield now comes in with a massive investment in Jared Kushner's personal property. In October of 2018, Virginia resident and Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered by the Saudi regime. Within just a very few weeks, days after that, the Trump administration approved another nuclear transfer under Part 810 to the Saudis without informing Congress or the public. In November of 2018, President Trump said the U.S. stands with Saudi Arabia after Khashoggi's murder, even though the U.S. Intel Committee was saying that the royal family and possibly MBS was complicit in that murder. Congress directed the administration of the Magnitsky Act to determine whether or not there was a human rights violation in February of 2019. The White House responded and refused to render a determination. Within days after that, they did another Part 810 transfer to the Saudis that they refused to notify Congress about. In April of 2019, President Trump vetoed the bipartisan resolution to end U.S. military support for the Saudi-backed war in Yemen. In May of 2019, the State Department submitted the emergency notifications we're talking about today, saying that they didn't have time because of the emergency to notify Congress when 47 days later, by your own testimony, the hardware has not actually been delivered. And just last month, the UN published a special rapporteur's report concerning the state-sponsored murder of Jamal Khashoggi, encouraging the UN and the FBI to continue to do more criminal investigation, which as far as we know, is not being done. This is the material that the House Oversight Committee is looking at. This is the material that we are very interested in. When you look at the financial ties between the president's own family and companies that stand to benefit and that are being publicly promoted by the Secretary of Energy to benefit from this deal, and you ask the question of why is the administration bypassing Congress, not on matters dealing with other countries, but again and again and again on matters dealing with Saudi Arabia, I think the hearing that we're having today is just the very tip of the iceberg about what Congress needs to do to exercise oversight about why there is such a departure from the ordinary course of business on matters of such national security sensitivity with respect to Saudi Arabia. With that, Mr. Chair, I appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. 
Um, you know, it looks to us these days as if the United States is the junior partner in this relationship. Um, I think of all of the timeline that Senator Kane just went through, the idea that we transferred the Saudis' nuclear technology literally days after the dismemberment of a journalist under U.S. protection came to light causes us all to wonder whether this is just one big scam. I'm glad we're doing this hearing. Um, I want to drill down on part of your testimony, Mr. Cooper, um, with respect to um, the purpose of our continued coalition uh, with the Saudis. You say in your testimony that, um, quote, we have worked with the Saudi-led coalition over the course of its operations to reduce the occurrence of civilian casualties. Um, but that is not, in fact, true. Um, in fact, the opposite is true. Civilian casualties are dramatically increasing. In 2017, airstrikes killed approximately 2,700 civilians inside Yemen. In 2018, airstrikes killed approximately 4,600 civilians inside Yemen. And reports are consistent that approximately one-third of coalition airstrikes are hitting civilian targets. That number has not changed. Um, so do, do you have different numbers, or do you agree with this broad assessment that civilian casualties are increasing, not decreasing? On the tragedy of the civilian casualties, there is uh, an uptick, what we've seen from the Houthi activity on, on civilians. I would offer on the That's work. not what I asked. I asked about the airstrikes. The airstrikes, the reports are that almost twice as many civilians were killed by airstrikes, and the airstrikes are by the coalition in 2018 and 2017. Your testimony says you have worked to reduce civilian casualties. The data there, says they doubled. Correct. There is there is ongoing work to not only mitigate but also refine targeting. So this is not limited to where targets are conducted by the coalition. This is how they actually conduct the work. This is also avoiding areas where there would be civilian casualties. That work is not abated. It's actually been increased. We can talk to further detail about that. The work has increased, but just to get the facts right, I, your, your, your wording in the testimony is careful. You say you've worked with them to reduce civilian casualties, but would you concede that, that civilian casualties from airstrikes has increased, not decreased? I cannot speak to the exact numbers, but I can tell you that is what we've done on capabilities to mitigate has increased on mitigating civilian casualties. Why, why can't you speak to numbers? I mean, don't you keep, you, you don't, if you were working with them to decrease civilian casualties, wouldn't you keep the numbers? On the interagency, we do work with our partners, with DOD and others, to get them to a capacity where they are more precise in identifying targets, more precise in executing their targets, and actually in avoidance of, of certain localities. I know that you work to that. I know that you are trying to work on that, but you can't testify before us today as to what the actual civilian casualties are. You don't know whether they have increased or decreased. The numbers associated with civilian casualties are not limited to what has been attributed to coalition number senator. But, okay, so you, you, do you know or do you not know whether civilian casualties have increased due to coalition airstrikes? I would say in a general sense here that there is a delta in information on 
what is attributed to a coalition ascribed casualty and what may be ascribed to either a Houthi or one of the adversarial casualties. All right, I'll be happy to give you some fairly definitive information that states that they have doubled over time and the fact that you're talking around this is maddening. Um, you talked earlier about consequences that would run to a U.S. ally that transfers arms that we have given to them to third parties not authorized uh, to uh, be the recipient of U.S. arms. As you know, in February of this year, there was a very disturbing report that suggested multiple U.S. weapons systems had been transferred to private militias operating inside Yemen. Reports are that U.S.-made Oshkosh armored vehicles were transferred to Abu Abbas, which is a militia linked with al-Qaeda. And UAE and UAE's government, in fact, confirmed that they have transferred MRAV vehicles to the Giants Brigade, a Salafist militia uh, that is doing work on the UAE's behalf inside Yemen. Um, have you come to the conclusion uh, that these transfers were made? And if you have, what have the consequences been? And how can you justify continuing to sell arms to countries that are openly advertising that they are taking the weapons we give them and the vehicles we give them and giving them to others that are not authorized to be in the possession? Thank you, Senator. The UAE remains a, a security partner for us in the region, not just for their sovereignty, but also for our interests and equities. However, it does not preclude us from an investigation. It does not preclude us from following up, and it does not preclude us from any imposition or consequences. So specific to the MRAP question, uh, that I've been in long enough to be able to directly address that issue with Emirati government. Uh, we are working with our embassy to get more detail and, and finality on that issue. Uh, it is an ongoing investigation. It has not been completely resolved. But we have directly approached the Emirati government at a ministerial level and at a working level uh, specific to the uh, reported AMRAP transfer. I, my time is up. But they have publicly confirmed that they transferred the MRAPs. There is no investigation needed. They told a CNN reporter that they gave the MRAPs to the Giants Brigade. And so that report coming in February doesn't need a five-month-long investigation. And part of our frustration about this new transfer of weapons to the Emiratis is it signals that there are no consequences. And so I would hope that this committee would make some further inquiry as to why an investigation is still ongoing when in February the UAE government confirmed that they had taken these MRAPs and given them to a Salafist militia inside the UAE. Sorry I went over my time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. During the June 12th uh, House hearing on the so-called emergency, you said, quote, holding a partner accountable doesn't preclude us from working with a partner. If anything, detaching ourselves from a partner, removing ourselves from our partner, puts at risk ensuring that accountability. So anyone remotely familiar with this subject sees the Trump administration has not held Saudi Arabia and the UAE to account for their unacceptable actions. In fact, it has rewarded them. And that fits a pattern of the Trump administration appeasement of the Saudis, including by one, providing access to nuclear know-how, two, supporting an immoral war in Yemen, three, breaking our word on the Iran nuclear deal, and four, helping Riyadh escape accountability for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi 
and for the use of child soldiers. So this accountability you speak of is purely theoretical accountability. So Mr. Cooper, would China keep selling arms to countries that are committing human rights violations? I'm sure China has, uh, I would say, not any parameters or, or any bar that would preclude them from selling to any customer uh, that was willing to receive their, their equipment or subpar services. So would Russia keep selling arms in such a case to countries that are committing human rights violations? Senator, I would say that any of those adversaries probably do not have the limits, the parameters, the requirements that we, the United States government, expect from any of our security partners, regardless of, of what region they're in. So in practice, <coughs> other countries require no accountability for the sales of deadly weapons. So why is the United States doing what China or Russia would do in this situation? We're not extracting any accountability from the Saudis any more than the Chinese or the Russians would. So why should we continue? Well, blessedly, we are not operating on the same limited parameters or lack of parameters that those adversaries would, would be operating under. If anything, we have very tight parameters. We're also transparent. Um, those two adversaries you, you referenced don't operate in a transparent fashion, either with their legislative branch or with their partner that they're doing dealings with. Uh, the recipient country probably doesn't, their populace isn't probably aware of what system or sale that they've been signed up for, their government's committed it into. Right, and point, we, also provide, we also provide sustainment in a way that uh, an adversary doesn't. Uh, we make sure that our partners, if they receive or purchase uh, a platform or system, know how to operate it, uh, that it's operable, uh, that we make sure that they can be capable and ready uh, for but, but our security interests. But what you're saying is that we have transparency, so everyone knows that we're selling the equipment. We actually give them good training uh, so they can operate the equipment, so that's great. But we don't actually then hold them accountable for their human rights violations. And so I, we're transparent about that as well. And so, yeah, maybe the, the Chinese or the Russians are not as um, uh, as uh, a transparent, but they also don't require any human rights compliance. So your argument that we should be a, re a reliable security partner and that will further our values, that just unfortunately demonstrates that the Trump administration standards are no higher than those of China or of Russia, and we're in a race to the bottom in terms of what our standards will be on human rights. And thanks to the Trump administration, our ability to push our security partners for accountability and moral leadership is theoretical platitudes rather than a practical reality. It is critical that the United States be the moral leader, the country that upholds the rules-based international order, the country that advances fundamental rights, freedoms, and accountability. But the Trump administration intentionally is overlooking human rights considerations in our arms exports and using the guise of a, quote, emergency to do so. So, Mr. Cooper, there is a wide bipartisan agreement that your efforts have been insufficient, <clears throat> and I have yet to see any evidence that the administration has any standard for how many bombed hospitals or how many targeted activists it would take to have the Trump administration change its course. The problem 
is that the Trump administration refuses to actually use the very influence that you say that the arms sales provide. We have a dearth of leadership on the global stage, and any time leaders around the world hear this administration refer to its morality, it rings increasingly hollow. Mr. Cooper, we need some evidence uh, to convict this administration of actually having stood up for human rights in Saudi Arabia some evidence that that has happened. Thus far, it is still not evident to the American people. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator if I may, there, there is, an, and Senator, you're, you're right to point out the necessity for us to not only export uh, our know-how and our technology, but also to export uh, what is what makes America unique, and that is export our values, export, export our, our open society, our free society, and we do do that. That is part of the process. Specific to Saudi Arabia and UAE, there are dissident voices that are being supported by the administration, by the secretary. There are cases that the secretary is pressing specifically, as well as Ambassador Abizaid. There are also other human rights uh, concerns that are not always enumerated in the open report. There's the annual report that our department produces, but those factors are not precluded at all. Uh, we can work with partners, but it, and we can also continue to address issues of concern that are about open society, free society, dissident voices, uh, and human rights. We can do both. We have done both as a country, and we continue can do so. Again, I, 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 thank, I, I thank you, but again, Yemen, Khashoggi, nuclear know-how, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, I just think it's a one-way street here, and there may be some small exceptions, but on the larger picture, the United States is not standing up for the human rights values uh, that we profess to be the world leader of. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Cooper, as the Assistant Secretary for Political and Military Affairs, I assume you understand the difference between the informal review process on arms sales with this committee and the Senate-wide 30-day formal statutory review and resolution of disapproval. Is that a fair statement? Yes, Senator, and including uh, how that's defined by if someone's a NATO ally or a different partner status. Well, I don't know about NATO allies. I simply care about what we do here. So in that regard, when you answered Senator Cardin and said some of these have been pending a year, the reality is, is that as it relates to the statutory 30-day Senate-wide review, you blew through that. So that's not a completely accurate answer. Let me ask you this. 47 days after the Secretary claimed that there was an emergency, is it not true that state has not even given the government-to-government -government draft contracts to the Saudis and Emiratis for all eight of the foreign military sales? There is ongoing on the LOAs for FMS. There is the working with the government to governments on if they have to be adjusted because some of them were dated during the, as you noted, the informal review process. So it's getting some of those to date. What is complete are the licenses on the DCS side, sir. I didn't ask you that. I mean, I appreciate you answering questions that I didn't ask. Let me reiterate, is it not true that the state has not given the government-to-government -government 
draft contracts to the Saudis and Emiratis for all eight of the foreign military sales? Yes or no? You can't attest to the exact status of that here right now. Senator. You're the Assistant Secretary of State in charge of arms sales in this matter. There's an emergency. You know what this hearing's all about. And you can't tell me that? Well, let me help you out. As of July 1st, there have been three letters of offer and acceptance for the eight military sales. You can't wait 30 days for the statutory Senate-wide congressional review of these sales, and yet 47 days after the Secretary's declaration of an emergency, the administration still hasn't offered the government-to-government -government contract on a whole host of these. So what's, what's the sense of the emergency? What's the sense of the emergency? Let me turn to something else. Uh, has anyone at the State Department or the White House told, directed, or advised you not to answer specific questions during this hearing? No, I have not received any of that guidance. Okay, then I expect a full and complete answer from you. To your knowledge, did anyone in the White House advocate, direct, that the State Department find a way to move these sales to Saudi Arabia, the UAE, or both, despite both my and Chairman Engel's hopes? I'm not aware of that, Senator. What I'm aware of is this was the Secretary's decision to make. It was an option for the Secretary. It was a tool for the a tool of deterrence for the so Secretary. The State Department made this decision fully independent of the White House, is what you're telling me. I can tell you from where I sit that Secretary Pompeo had several tools to look at, including imposition or application of sanctions. This was another set of tools in his toolkit to deter Iran. It was his decision to make, Senator. Let me reiterate my question. Did the State Department make this decision fully independent of the White House, yes or no? I don't want to hear about the toolkit and no, no. the tools. But, you know. So there's, there's an interagency process that's required. All these cases went through that. That's including uh, NSC uh, knowledge of these cases. So the cases so went through an interagency process. So through the interagency process, the White House was involved. They would have to be, like on all cases, we just talked about Taiwan today, they would be in, in part of that process of the review of any case, you any were, arms case. You were confirmed on April 30th of this year. Uh, isn't it true that upon your confirmation there were already discussions taking place at the State Department about evoking an emergency declaration on some or all of the 22 arms sales? What I can attest and affirm is that there's always an ongoing assessment on any of the cases that we have, not just the Gulf ones that we're talking about today. Those would, would certainly have precluded. I'm only interested in the ones we're talking about today. There would have been ongoing. Were there conversations at the time that you took office that there were already discussions at the State Department in terms of invoking an emergency declaration on these sales? I cannot speak to an emergency declaration, but I would say it's safe to assess that these cases in the emergency declaration certainly would have been under what, consideration and, and of interest what, as one's looking at the posture of their defense, their sovereignty, and their ability to be a security what partner. What did you first discuss with anyone in the department invoking an emergency declaration for these sales? In an open forum, I'm not going to talk to that or the pre-decisional. What, 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 pre-decisional? Wait a minute. This is the Secretary's decision, Senator. It's not a question of, I'm not asking about the Secretary's decision. You know, what, uh, what privilege are you asserting? You keep talking about pre-decision. What uh, privilege are you asserting? 
the interagency review of, of what was taking place before we do informal notification on any case. Also, the review of the intelligence that's assessments. Not, that's not a privilege. You're testifying before the Senate's oversight committee of this particular department. And there is no legal basis to refuse to respond regardless of whether it's pre-decisional or not. So I'm simply asking you for a date. When did you first discuss with anyone in the department invoking an emergency declaration? As to a specific date, I cannot tell you, but I can tell you that being read into the department, the Iran threat was certainly of, of interest. It is, would be for anybody who would be coming into the department at that time. Uh, and any, but, but the, Iran any, threat any that, the Iran threat that you now justify is not the same threat back in April uh, of this year. There's a posture shift. There's a posture shift, but uh, I would say that if anybody arriving in the national security framework in a different capacity well, I'd ask, I'd would be ask, getting read on to a number of statuses. I'd ask statuses. you to, to look at your calendar and respond to me in writing. When was the first date that you began to discuss an emergency declaration on these 22 arms sales? Will you do that for the record? Look for the QFR, Senator. I do want to reemphasize that review of any particular threat posture would have been part of my read-on. Fortunately, I was already in the, the national security framework, so much of that was not my, news my to me. My point is that the threat posture in April is not the threat posture that now justifies. No, it's an adjusted that. posture, but it was one that was let relevant me, to, to the time in Let May. me ask you today uh, one, one final question. I'll have a whole bunch for the record, but not to delay the hearing anymore, and there's another vote on the floor. Uh, Give me a simple yes or no. Uh, did you or the department receive a legal written opinion on this declaration? Our legal office, our legal advisory was that it was within the statute that Congress had passed and was within the realm of the Secretary's authorities ask, to apply. I ask you that. Thank you for answering a question I didn't ask you. You've become very good at that. I asked you a very specific question. Did you receive a written, underlined, underscored, written legal opinion? There was legal opinion provided for the process, a Senator. A written legal opinion, not legal opinion, a written legal opinion. There was a number of reviews that took place in the interagency, including legal, on what was in the statute what was applicable and what was available for the Mr. secretary. Cooper, you're an incredibly bright man. You served the country well in so many different ways. It, it pains me to have to go through this with you, but I'll try a third time. Written. Was there a written legal opinion? Yes or no? Senator, there were multiple reviews and multiple writings, not just from legal, but the interagency on this. So this wasn't a, this was not a, a this was a very prudent process, so it's, we're talking a detailed review that took place for the secretary to have that option to make a decision. Mr. Chairman, this is why uh, we have challenges here. This is why I, I try uh, to work together to achieve certain goals, but when a simple answer, yes, there was a written opinion. No, there's not a written opinion. There was a verbal opinion. There was an oral opinion. 
I mean, when there is not responsiveness like this, then I have limited resources of what I can do to try to get a response. And that and then creates the need to pursue those limited resources. And if I could only get, you know, honest, transparent answers to my questions, not to every gobbledygook that has nothing to do with my question, then we could all move along a lot further, we could all achieve a lot more, and we could all find more comedy. But for so long as this is the type of answer I'm gonna get, then I'm gonna use all the tools at my disposal to get the right answers, to get the honest answers, to get the transparent answers. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Menendez. My experience in court is that all you can do is ask questions, but you can't make them answer the questions the way you want them answered. So that's just the way it is. And uh, uh, with that, uh, Chairman, the, it's not the way I want them answered. Yeah, I just like to get an honest answer. Got that. But uh, they, again, you can only craft the questions; you can't craft the answers. Um, in any event. Uh, that will conclude our hearing today. Mr. Cooper, uh, thank you very much uh, for being with us today. The record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, and we'd ask that the witness to respond as promptly as possible. Your responses will be made a part of the record. With that, again, thanks from the committee, and the committee is adjourned.